I've decided to stage an intervention, Dominic. I'm very concerned about you. Oh no, why? So my husband's been using Duolingo to improve his French and you and him are friends on this app. Oh no. And I don't even know what languages you're learning at the moment, but you seem to be spending an alarming amount of time on this app. My <laughs> husband says you're on a 57 day streak. What's happening? I am actually just doing Dutch. Oh. I recently went back to it because I was like, do they have advanced Duolingo? Because little humble brag. <laughs> I think I have like, in Duolingo terms anyway, a bit advanced at Dutch. And uh, it turns out they do. Oh. And the reason why I've got that streak isn't because I have actually been doing Duolingo all of those days. I joined a friend's family Duolingo paid membership. Whoa. And it means you can get loads of freeze streaks. So it's actually fake news. Oh, so you haven't been practicing your Dutch at all? No. And actually, I've kind of given up on it a bit in the last few weeks. You know who we really need to intervene with is composer, musician of this show, Jim Barn. Oh, yes. Who has something like a 2000 day streak. Jim's girlfriend is Brazilian, so he's been learning Portuguese on it for a few years now. I think he's finished Duolingo. He must be fluent by now. If he's actually putting in the work and not cheating like some people. Um, anyway, putting aside your Duolingo fraud, what is coming up on the show this week? Well, later on in the show, we're going to be calling up our friend Nick Malkoutsis from an apparently pretty snowy Athens to discuss this extraordinary spying scandal that has been bubbling away at the heart of the Greek government for many months now and refuses to die down. We'll be diving into that later on in the show. But first, it's time for Good Week, Bad Week. Good Week, Bad Week. Who's had a bad week, Dominic? It's been a bad week for a wolf with the name GW950M. That's a pretty name. It sounds like one of um, Elon Musk's children. That's true, it does. Um, actually, conservationists have given this wolf the name of Snowy, a much more cuddly name. Aww. So maybe I should go by that. Anyway, it is the most famous or infamous wolf in Europe right now. He is the wolf that attacked and killed Dolly, the beloved 30-year-old pony belonging to the most powerful woman in Europe, Ursula von der Leyen, president of the European Commission. This killing took place in September last year, but the reason why I'm talking about it this week is because it was looking like the wolf was out of the woods. He had been on an official kill list from October until the end of January. The authorities in Hanover had given local hunters a special license to shoot and kill GW950M, despite the protected species status wolves hold because of this specific wolf's violent behaviour towards other animals. That license ran out at the end of January, with the wolf evading the hunters during that entire period. But here comes the bad news for him. A new permit has been requested, so the bounty on his head will possibly, probably be back soon. No! Bad news for Snowy. Really bad news. My first question is, was it von der Leyen who like, personally asked for this wolf to be put on some kind of kill list? We don't know. All we do know is that the initial kill permit was, according to officials in the region, submitted for consideration before Dolly was killed. Okay. He'd been connected to more than a dozen other killings. So von der Leyen is not the only person that wants this wolf dead. 
Von der Leyen and her family were understandably, quote, horribly distressed by the news when they heard of Dolly's killing. Mm. I would be too, I'm sure, if this pony had been in your family for 30 years. And of course, it's a really difficult discussion to have. We've talked about it before on this podcast that wolves, like other predators, will sometimes kill other animals. But there are just mountains of studies stressing how important they are, nonetheless, for the ecosystem. And they were pretty much eradicated in large parts of Europe previously, right? Yeah, and that was mainly due to hunting. And they have made a remarkable recovery in Europe since we have started recognizing their important role in protecting biodiversity and restricting the hunting of these animals. But that could change quickly if politicians decide they don't want to protect wolves anymore. And of course, it is complicated allowing these animals to roam that sometimes do kill livestock or even a politician's prize pony. Conservationists argue against hunting and say there are other solutions, such as better fencing, livestock guard dogs, and just proper compensation for livestock killed by wolves. But yeah, sometimes animals will be killed by a predator. And unfortunately for this particular predator, and for all wolves, actually, he has made himself and his entire species a pretty powerful enemy. Only weeks after the killing of her pony Dolly, Ursula von der Leyen wrote a letter to Christian Democratic members of the European Parliament, according to the German paper Taz, in which she questioned whether the current protection status of wolves is justified, considering the, quote, numerous reports of wolf attacks on animals and of increased risk to local people. This feels like a personal vendetta, no? Doesn't seem like it's a coincidence that this letter came just after her pony was killed. And also that last point she made is pretty questionable. The risk to humans from wolves is not zero, but it is incredibly small. According to one big study looking at wolf attacks between 2002 and 2020, there were only five attacks on humans from wolves in the wild in Europe in those 18 years, and none of those attacks were fatal. Mm. Von der Leyen also ordered her staff in the executive branch of the EU to produce a re-evaluation of the rules that protect wolves in Europe. And actually, the European Parliament also seems to back a rethink. That chamber voted to lower the protected status of wolves in Europe back in November in a non-binding resolution that had conservationists up in arms, considering wolves are still vulnerable or near-threatened in some parts of Europe. Mm. The wolves, however, also have some pretty powerful defenders. This week, a group of 11 ministers for the environment from across Europe came together as a pack and wrote a letter to the European Commissioner for the Environment calling for the protections of this species to be kept in place. Politico incidentally created a bonkers website, UrsulaVersusTheWolf.com, with a so good. It is brilliant with a countdown to the death permit expiration. Currently, that countdown stands at zero. A happy sight for the wolf, but I am still giving this big bad wolf bad week because it seems likely that countdown will be ticking again soon. I'm so invested in the story. It's such a good narrative, isn't it? It's like pitting the most powerful woman in Europe against Europe's most powerful animal. Yeah. But I do feel very sorry for Dolly the Pony. I feel sorry for Dolly, but I also 
don't want it to mean the whole wolf species are damaged because of one politician's pony. That would be disproportionate, yes. Who's had a good week, Katie? Uh, I am delighted to tell you, Dominic, that it's been a fantastic week for Shell, Europe's largest energy company. Uh, They reported their biggest ever profits last week, nearly 40 billion euros, which is the most money that they have made in their 115 years of being a company. Yay! Oh, that's great news. Congratulations, Shell. It's truly great news for this extremely polluting company and its shareholders. Well, this is depressing. It is depressing. Um, Shell have been able to announce these huge profits because the price of oil and gas went up massively last year. So they're benefiting from this thing that has led to the price of basically everything increasing for ordinary people, heating, food, and the poorest people are having to choose between those essentials. So the idea of Shell making 40 billion euros last year just feels horribly, horribly wrong. Of course, they're spending all that money on helping the economies transition away from fossil fuels, aren't they, Katie? We will get to that later. Uh, Spoiler alert, (laughs) maybe not. I'm assuming that most of these profits come from the fact that the price of oil and gas went up because of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? Yeah. So as we all know, the energy market went into chaos after the full-scale invasion last February. Uh, The West put sanctions on the Russian oil and gas that they had previously loved buying, and uh, all the supply chains got messed up. Uh, The war also coincided with economies around the world coming out of COVID lockdowns. So there was also more demand for fossil fuels at a time when the supply was more restricted. So the price of fuel went up. And that has meant some very tasty 2022 financial results for the world's oil and gas giants. Uh, Shell are not the only ones reporting massive profits at the moment. BP also just announced their biggest profits in history, literally as we started recording this today. And ExxonMobil also announced record profits last week. And we're recording this a day before the French oil and gas giant Total is due to announce its latest profits. They're expected to be massive as well. So yeah, oil and gas companies are truly rolling in it right now. Is there a silver lining that because of all these extra taxes that were brought in, these windfall taxes, the public purse is going to be filled with oil and gas tax money? Uh, I think I know the answer. (laughs) Well, I mean, over the past year, lots of countries did bring in what we call windfall taxes on oil and gas companies. The idea of a windfall tax is that a government brings it in when a company makes loads of money as a result of like random circumstances, as opposed to just being really amazing at business. All of these energy companies have made a ton of money because there is a war, which is kind of gross in itself. Um, But yeah, lots of countries around Europe have brought in these windfall taxes on energy companies or are bringing them in. Let's look at Shell though, because it's an example of a windfall tax that really hasn't worked that well. Uh, Shell stresses that around the world, it paid $13 billion in tax last year, but it's headquartered in the UK. So you'd expect it to pay a decent amount of tax there, right? Yeah. And Shell has just announced how much it has to pay for 2022 for this windfall tax. And it is a whopping $134 million, which is 0.3% of that 40 billion in profit that I told you about. How does that happen? Uh, Well, I'm about to depress you even more by telling you that not only has this windfall tax brought in a pitiful amount of money to UK coffers, but in fact, Shell have been paying barely any tax in the UK for years. Uh, Most years since 2015, Shell and BP have actually paid negative tax 
in the UK, mm. meaning they have got more money back from the government than they've paid as a special treat for being wonderful. Uh, why is that? Well, the main reason is that the UK government really wants to encourage the presence of companies like Shell in the North Sea. Uh, yes, it is a government that, like others, says it wants to fight climate change, but it also wants to make money. And after the Russian invasion, especially, you started getting British politicians talking about how they thought it was important to increase the UK's own energy supply. So how does the UK government encourage companies like Shell and BP to stick around in the North Sea? Uh, well, it gives them some very nice tax advantages for investing there, which is how we've ended up with Shell having very small or even negative tax bills in the UK for years. Even though with the windfall tax added on, Shell in theory faces a total tax rate of 75% in the UK. It just hasn't been paying anything like that at all. Um, the other reason that the extra windfall tax in particular has brought in such a pathetic amount of money so far is that it's only a tax on the profits that Shell makes extracting oil and gas in the North Sea off the UK itself, mm. which is really not a very big part of Shell's overall business, right? Shell is a global company. It extracts these resources all over the world. But the UK government must now be under pressure to increase this tax, right? Uh, yeah, they're, they're not going to do that. Really? No. Um, Downing Street, the Prime Minister's office, have said they absolutely understand why everyone's so angry at Shell making these massive profits, but there are currently no plans to increase the windfall tax. Um, I guess that's partly because they still want these companies to invest in the North Sea. And it kind of goes along with this general mood of the UK government right now in terms of not really minding when rich people get even richer while, you know, resisting pay rises for nurses and teachers. Yeah, whilst... Thousands of people are living in fuel poverty and unable to pay their energy bills. Yeah. Seems completely ridiculous. And I also read that the windfall tax that the UK brought in is providing less money than they expected. So you think they need the money as a government? They definitely need the money right now. Is there not a better way of doing it than the way the UK is doing it right now? Well, the EU seems to be doing it a bit better they introduced a different type of windfall tax on the energy giants last year. It's called the Solidarity Contribution Scheme. And under that, Shell got a total tax bill of $520 million in the EU. So nearly four times as much. And they did that using a different way of calculating the tax bill, which is probably a bit too complicated for me to go into now. Um, but yeah, companies don't really like paying this money very much. Uh, Exxon, the US energy giant, is actually suing the EU over this tax. But yeah, how might we tax the energy giants a bit better? Uh, I did fall down a bit of an internet rabbit hole and read a lot about how Norway taxes energy companies. Uh, petroleum companies in Norway pay up to 78% in tax. And loads of the money goes into this famous and extremely valuable sovereign wealth fund that invests the money on behalf of the public. And it's often praised as a system that makes sure that citizens get to share in the wealth that comes from extracting fossil fuels. Norway has, to its credit, also announced that it's going to take the extra cash that its petroleum sector has earned as a result of the war and give it to Ukraine. So you could see Norway's way of doing it as better, but we've talked about it before in the podcast about how Norway is really essentially addicted to all the tax money that it gets from fossil fuels. And it's totally contradictory to the country's climate goals and its image as a, a green and sustainable country. This is maybe the least cheery good week that I have ever done, for which I apologise. Because, yeah, the whole situation just feels really grim. These huge contributors to climate change have been making massive profits 
while also contributing hugely to the suffering of the poorest people right now who are really struggling to pay their bills. And it's not even like, to go back to what you said at the beginning, Dominic, it's not even like Shell is using all of this extra money that it's made this year to invest in a cleaner future and greener energy. Uh, Only 14% of his capital spending last year was on renewables. And not to depress everyone even more, but you may not have seen this, Katie, yet, but BP, when they announced their profits today, they also announced that um, they are cutting their emissions pledge and plan greater production of oil and gas over the next seven years. Brilliant. It's all just fantastic. Things are going really well. I will try and leave you on a sliver of a positive note. Uh, Shell is expected to see both higher tax bills and smaller profits in the months to come. In the last quarter of this year, it says it expects to take a $2 billion hit in windfall taxes in the UK and EU combined because it's going to benefit less this year from all of these nice, friendly tax discounts that I talked about. The other thing is that the price of oil and gas have gone down loads since the peak. So their profits are expected to go down as well. So at least, I guess, next year, the numbers might not be quite so infuriating. I also think, I know you say that the UK government aren't going to do anything, and you're probably right, but I feel like this time there have been so many headlines about these enormous profits and the lack of tax being paid on them that I think there might be a lot of public pressure and pressure from the media for them to be taxed further. And yeah, I wonder how whether it's going to cause some real trouble for the UK government. <sighs> I hope you're right. I don't have much faith in anything forcing the UK government to do a better job right now. <laughs> Big thanks to the latest lovelies who decided to support us on Patreon. They are Marcel Saim, D. Rubio, Kenneth Santos and Olga Mulvad. Thank you guys so much. We record this podcast from our homes. There is no fancy media company backing it. And we really couldn't carry on making it without our listeners. So we are super, super grateful for any spare change that you can send our way. Um, One of the nice things that you get if you chip in is you get to join our lovely Facebook group for supporters, which I think has been on particularly good form recently, especially when it comes to suggestions for things to read and watch in these miserable winter months. So if that sounds like something that you would enjoy... Or if you are simply an amazing person who wants to do something generous this week, we would love it if you could sign up to support us at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. We wanted to catch up this week on a scandal that has been slowly snowballing. Can you have something that slowly snowballs? Uh, Yeah, I think so. What did you say it was? You said it was bubbling. Bubbling away. It's bubbling and it's snowballing. Um, The scandal has been slowly snowballing for months now. Snowly? Slowly (laughs) snowballing. (laughs) Slowly (laughs) snowballing for months now in Greece. Um, Back in August last year, it turned out that the Conservative government in Greece had had the leader of the Socialist Party, Nikos Andrulakis, under surveillance. The intelligence service had been spying on his phone. Eek. Eek indeed. Um, and over the months that followed, it turned out that Andrulakis was far from the only person being snooped on. In fact, dozens of people, including journalists, business leaders, people working with refugees, members of the military, even members of the governing party itself, ministers, have been reported as being targets of surveillance in Greece, having their phones tapped, in some cases with court approval, but in other cases using a very sneaky and illegal piece of software called Predator. 
which is really powerful. Uh, Predator is a competitor to Pegasus, a type of spyware that you might remember has been used by governments all over the world, including here in Europe, to break into the phones of activists and all kinds of people to see what's happening on their phones. Predator is pretty similar in terms of being able to show someone basically everything that is happening on the target's phone. So what on earth has been going on? We thought it was time that we caught up with the scandal, particularly since it isn't going away. It actually triggered a vote of confidence in the Greek government at the end of January. And although they managed to survive it, with elections coming later this year, we wondered if it's something that might cause trouble for Prime Minister Kyriakos Mitsotakis and his Conservative Party, New Democracy. It is a very complicated scandal, so we were very glad to have with us this week our favourite unraveller of complicated Greek things, a returning guest. Nick Malkoutsis is the co-founder and editor of Macropolis. It is a website that provides in-depth analysis of all things Greek, and we gave him a ring in Athens. We have a prime minister who said that he didn't know that all of these people were being spied on. But we also have all of these things that look pretty bad for the prime minister. Like the fact that one of the first things he did when he got into power was to bring the intelligence service that has been doing this spying under the direct control of his office. This scandal has been going on for months now. Do you feel like you're any closer to knowing how much the prime minister knew, how much he's to blame for all of this? And who is actually responsible for this mess? You said it out really well. You have this situation in which there's this massive surveillance operation. We're talking about two different types of surveillance. So you have the legal surveillance. The Greek National Intelligence Service is able to spy on people, like intelligence agencies everywhere, as long as it has the sign-off from a prosecutor that is appointed specifically to the service to do that task. And that right, if you like, is used extensively by the Greek intelligence service. So we have thousands of wiretappings every year. Then you have what is the illegal wiretapping, which was taking place via the use of the predator spyware. And the question there is... Who is doing this? Is there any link to either the intelligence agency or to the authorities in any uh, specific way? Now, as you said, the Prime Minister of Greece, Kyriakos Mitsotakis, has denied any knowledge, any link to this. The problem for him, though, he brought the National Intelligence Service under his auspices, the auspices of his office when he came to power, the other problem is he appointed the head of that intelligence agency and then he put his general secretary, who also happened to be his nephew, in charge of oversight of this intelligence agency. So in that way, it connects back to the prime minister. But despite this scandal going on and revelations over the months, no one has really produced a smoking gun, if you like, something that definitively says the Prime Minister knew. Nevertheless, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence, there are a lot of reports. But as long as there is no definitive evidence, as long as the judicial investigation isn't really progressing, there are, of course, doubts in people's minds. And this is reflected in public opinion polls. So one of the strange things, and this kind of sums up what's going on, is that if you look at opinion polls, the majority of Greeks believe that the Prime Minister or people close to him knew what was going on. But at the same time, 
the wiretapping story ranks really low down the list of people's uh, priorities. Now, there are a number of reasons for that second thing. Obviously, the cost of living crisis, everything else that is going on. But it's like people kind of suspect that something is going on, but the evidence really isn't there and they've got other things to worry about. So, you know, let's not bother about it too much. I've been following some of the reaction from the main opposition party, Syriza, and they seem to be suggesting that all this snooping, tapping into phones of politicians, journalists and heads of the armed forces could have produced rich material to potentially blackmail these people over the next few years. What do you think about this suggestion? Do you think there's a possibility that this could actually be the case or are Syriza overplaying their hand a bit? The opposition has suggested that the ruling centre-right party, New Democracy in Greece, was trying to accumulate evidence that it could use to leverage against its opponents or people that it felt had some kind of influence. Again, no one has been able to prove anything like this. But it is interesting that the list of people who were supposedly targeted by Predator being published by in, in the local media, we're talking about more than 100 people. Very few, and we're talking just about a handful, have come forward and confirmed that they were targeted by Predator and have spoken out against it. And this issue has been investigated not only by some Greek media, but you know international media outlets. And one of those was the New York Times. And I remember a few months ago, Martina Stevis, one of the reporters, uh, tweeted that during their investigation, they spoke to a number of people who confirmed privately they'd been targeted, but wouldn't do so in public. And the reason that they gave is, A, we're fearful that they may have something compromising or something that could put me in a difficult position. And B, I'm fearful that if I come forward, I will um, give the opposition something to beat the government with. And that's the other thing that's going on here is that this is very quickly turned into a political issue, as you can imagine. We're in a situation where many believe with the current government, stability is returned, Greece is on the right path, it's getting growth, tourism is back with a bang, investment grade for Greece's sovereign debt is uh, just around the corner. And there's a lot of people who don't want to rock the boat. They don't want this scandal to blow up into something that could threaten Greece's political stability, or more precisely, the ability of the current government to be re-elected. And we've got elections coming up in a few months' time. Journalists have been among the targets of this surveillance, and these revelations that they've been spied on have come at a time of general worry about the media in Greece. As a reporter in Greece yourself, can you paint us a picture of what this worrying climate feels like? I think, first of all, if you can call it a positive from it, I think that the fact that this issue was, to a great extent, uncovered, reported on and highlighted by small independent media outlets and some very sort of persistent journalists is a victory for journalism in Greece, despite whatever problems there may be. And perhaps that bodes well for the future. We'll see. The, the broader issue is that having gone through the previous economic crisis, when the role of the media was highlighted then in terms of whether the media had been 
too close to the political establishment because of the business interests it represented and therefore hadn't been warning about the impending crisis. There was this hope that once the crisis was over, we would see sort of better quality, fairer, more balanced type of media in Greece. And that hasn't really emerged beyond a few sort of small independent media outlets. And I think there is a sense at the moment that a lot of the mainstream media is heavily pro-government, which is not a strange thing that it happens in other countries, but is so focused on supporting the current government that it is intentionally either obscuring or ignoring important stories. And I think that is the greatest concern at the moment, that a lot of issues are not being reported on thoroughly enough or even at all, or even distorted possibly, in order to protect the popularity and reputation of the government. I think this is you know, the main charge at the moment with regards to the Greek media sector. So the government has reacted to the spying scandal partly by bringing in some new legislation that is supposed to tighten the use of spyware. Some civil rights activists are complaining that it's not very good law and that, for example, if you find out that you've been spied on, you still won't be able to demand an explanation of why you were spied on. Do you think the law will help to fix things in any way? I think that the issue here is that because of the nature of the work they do, that national intelligence agencies need to have the right to monitor people, monitor organisations, communications, whatever it may be. And you're always on that fine line about whether those powers are open to abuse or not. I don't think that this law really does much to address whether the National Intelligence Agency can abuse those powers or not. I think it's more a law aimed at uh, saying, well, we will bring in a bit more transparency, but we'll do it in a very sort of controlled manner. So it seems like something is done to create greater accountability rather than creating greater accountability. If it is deep dives on Greek politics in English that you're looking for, Nick's podcast, The Agora, is really, really excellent. Uh, They did a whole episode on this scandal, as well as a deep dive into the problems that Greek media are facing right now. And you can find it on whatever platform thingy you're listening to this on. What have you been enjoying this week? I started watching Kunk on Earth. Oh. Have you started it, yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, her clips do come up often on my TikTok. She's very funny. It's very TikTokable content. This is this new Netflix BBC co-production, which is really, honestly, the funniest thing I've watched in a very long time. I don't often laugh out loud at comedy. I'm pretty much a miserable old grump, but um, it's a... Mo- you said it, not me. <laughs> it's a mockumentary tracing the history of civilization, very roughly in the vein of kind of what Sasha Baron Cohen did with Borat or Bruno. And it's starring Diane Morgan, who is just an incredible 
performer embodying the worst documentary film presenter imaginable <laughs> named Philomena Kunk. It is really cleverly written um, as well as brilliantly performed. She has to improvise a lot because a lot of it takes place in interviews with historians. And you should be prepared for the fact that it is quite cringy at times because she's asking these historians like just ridiculously stupid questions. Are they in on the joke? I had this question. Like, do they know they're being played or do they think it's a serious interview? They must not know they're being played because they couldn't be good enough actors. Um, and half of the fun of it is just watching how they respond to her completely idiotic questions. And I hope they can see the funny side because it is quite brutal for them. In a way, it feels a bit more cruel than Borat because Borat seemed to be targeting people who had questionable views, whereas these are just poor, like, British historians. <laughs> anyway, watch the first five minutes and you'll very quickly decide whether you can deal with it or not. I definitely can deal with it. Despite feeling sorry for these poor interviewees, it is so funny. I did see a clip of her talking to a historian about the Soviet Union and she kept saying, no, I mean the Soviet Union. You keep saying Soviet Union, but I'm talking about the Soviet Union. <laughs> it's very stupid, but very funny. Oh, she's a genius. Uh, what have you been enjoying, Katie? Um, I got stuck into a podcast series that was recommended by two listeners on our supporters Facebook group. So big thanks to Francesca Baldassari and Monica Pavlovska for the tip. It is Timothy Snyder's lecture series speaking of poor academics, uh, but this is a very serious series. Uh, it's called The Making of Modern Ukraine. Uh, Timothy Snyder is a very distinguished historian of Central and Eastern Europe. He teaches at Yale University. And the series was recorded live back in November during his classes on the history of Ukraine. And they are great. Uh, I've never heard him speak before, but he's a really, really good teacher. He talks like a normal person and you can hear all of these sweet slightly dorky interactions with his students sometimes. And it is just a really incredibly accessible and fascinating introduction to the history of Ukraine. Uh, it goes all the way back to ancient Greek and Jewish and Ottoman settling of the land. It absolutely debunks Putin's argument that Russia and Ukraine must be united because history must be this way. And I'm not just learning lots about Ukraine. It's also making me think about history in a different way and nations in a different way. And I just feel like I'm getting a Yale education for free. Uh, I can't recommend it highly enough. I've been listening to these classes on Spotify in podcast form, but you can also watch them on YouTube. And I will put both links in the show notes. I've got a nice, unexpected archaeological discovery for y'all to round up this show with cheer. And I'm heading to Rome this week, where a bulldozer was working hard on some old sewage pipes that needed replacing when all of a sudden a face emerged. Ooh. Not a real face. Um, okay. That would be a horrible way <laughs> to close this show. It was a face made out of marble of a man with a beard and some frown lines. Botox apparently was not something the Romans invented. He's an old grumpy guts like you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and it's not just a face. Most of an entire statue was found with some of it damaged, but a lot of it in a pretty good state. It was quickly identified as a statue of someone presented as Hercules 
because it has Hercules's typical props like the club, the lion skin, usual Hercules stuff. But the archaeologists who were brought in to work on it said it was actually a sculpture of someone posing as Hercules. And they think that this someone in Hercules' fancy dress might be Emperor Decius, who was emperor of Rome from 249 to 251 AD. It would explain the furrowed brow because apparently that was typical in statues of Roman emperors from the third century to reflect the time of crisis they were living through. Mm. But hey, I love a story of an unexpected archaeological find, especially in a sewer. So thank you to Patreon supporter Helenka for sharing this on our secret Patreon supporter Facebook group. I do wonder what people at the time would have thought about their leaders dressing up in fancy dress as like Hercules for a statue. Yeah. Like, do you reckon they thought it was just really cringy? Yeah, there's definitely a cringe factor there. But maybe it sounds like he wasn't a very nice guy in general. So I think they probably had bigger concerns. We are actually away next week because Dominic is going to be singing his little heart out. Uh, What are you actually singing in? I've got a crazy week where I'm rehearsing in Eindhoven during the days and performing in Amsterdam every night (laughs) in a Verdi Requiem with the ballet. I'm going to survive. You're going to survive, but it didn't really feel like you could also make a podcast that week. No. We will, however, be back the week afterwards with a special episode marking a year since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine, reflecting on the year it has been. Don't miss it. In the meantime, uh, where can people find us on the internet? They can find us on Instagram at Europeans Podcast, on Twitter at Europeans Pod, or go and check out our glistening website, europeanspodcast.com. Is it glistening? It's fine. Um, The show was produced this week by me and Wojciech Alexiak. Our other producer is Katz Laszlo. And speaking of Ukraine, part two of the remarkable story that she has just reported for Radiolab and Rough Translation on smuggling abortion pills into Ukraine is out now. Uh, It is definitely worth your time. And we will drop a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, go listen to that. We'll be back in two weeks time. See you then. Bye. Dalemem. (laughs) 